Hey, happy Easter. So glad you've, you're here with us this morning as we begin our new series, Got Questions. As we think about some of the questions that Jesus has asked us, there's five or six different questions. And over the next few weeks, we'll be digging into these questions that Jesus has asked us and to make us think a little bit deeper about life and faith. And today on Easter Sunday, we're going to deal with what I think may be the most important question we can possibly be asked by Jesus. And the question is this, who do you say that I am? You know, life has changed drastically because of this person named Jesus. The two biggest days of the calendar year are Easter, which we're celebrating today, and then also Christmas Day. And those two days are because of the person of Jesus Christ. His impact upon our calendar and upon our culture is, is there is no one else that's had the kind of impact that Jesus has had. His birth divided our calendar into before Christ and in the year of the Lord after Christ. Um, his birth and life and death and resurrection has impacted our culture in a radical way. And uh, we celebrate our calendars around him and our life and, and different things that we do is around the person of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, throughout history since his birth, Jesus has been on people's minds. Think about it. Emperor Constantine... Napoleon, Leo Tolstoy, even Abraham Lincoln, and many more other famous people have dealt with this question about Jesus and the question that he asked of who do you say that I am. Even today on the Internet, if you were to Google the name Jesus, he's consistently leading the pack and the most Googled name out there and the most Googled person out there. So Jesus is consistently and has consistently been on people's minds since his birth. This morning, as we think about this idea of who do you say I am, that's our question for the day. It's our question for the ages is who is this Jesus guy? If you look with me here in just a second in Mark chapter 8, Jesus even asked his disciples that very question. And the reason that he asked that question is because he's been doing life with his disciples now for a few years and they've seen him do miracles, they've seen him... Uh, get away and pray, and they've seen him do life, just normal everyday life with him. And after the few years, Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples after actually just having completed a miracle, and they're walking along together, and Jesus asks them this very basic question of who do you say I am? So in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following, it says this, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you, these guys that I've been doing life with and that know me the best, who do you say that I am? And so that's our question this morning is, Who do we, who do I, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, here's what I want you to grasp is this, is that history tells us that Jesus was a real person. There's not any scholars that are worth their salt that would deny the existence of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, there's so many writings about Jesus that he's the most written about person in all of history. Thallus, which was a first century Greek writer, wrote about Jesus. Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman lawyer and author, wrote about the person of Jesus. Tacitus and Suetonius are Roman historians, and they wrote about the person of Jesus. Josephus, a Jewish historian, 
wrote about the person of Jesus. And of course, we have the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all wrote about the person of Jesus. Nobody has been written about more in history than the person of Jesus. One of the interesting things about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is that after his resurrection, at the beginning of A.D. 100, there are estimates that there were about 20,000 followers of Jesus, or 20,000 Christians. But by the time A.D. 300 came around, there were 20-plus million followers of Jesus. That this upstart guy named Jesus radically transformed his world and the world after him because of the things that he said and the life that he lived and the lived and the claims that he made about himself. Today, Christianity is the world's largest religious faith. Here's what we can know that history can tell us, is that Jesus exists and he's been impactful. One of the ways that we know that um, Jesus has been impactful in uh, not only in history, but also by the things that Jesus tells us. And the way that we know what Jesus has told us about himself is we get to have an opportunity to look at Scripture. And all throughout Jesus' life and ministry, as he was going about to and fro, the religious leaders of the day were consistently testing Jesus. They were consistently in his face and challenging him and asking him questions and, and trying to put him on the spot and to catch him and to get him into trouble. Well, here in John chapter 8, we see an instance where the religious leaders have come to Jesus and they've been dialoguing with him, having a discussion, and they begin to try to, to trick him into some stuff. And in the midst of that, they get into a kind of a heated discussion with Jesus. And so this is what it says in, in John chapter 8, verses 45 and following, about this discussion that Jesus has with, uh, with the religious leaders of the day. It says this, The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. Now, that's a pretty strong word. These religious leaders are, are looking at Jesus and saying, you're a Samaritan devil. Well, that's what they did. That's how confident that they were that they were right and that Jesus was wrong. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me, for I honor my father and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Then the people step back and they said, now, you know, now we know that you're possessed by a demon because even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. That's pretty strong language. Is that here are these religious leaders, the people that are saying that they know God the best. That they're the ones that people are looking towards saying, hey, you are the ones that are supposed to be guiding us into how to know God. And Jesus makes this claim of you don't even know him, but I know him. And we'll talk about this idea of knowing God a little bit later, but it's an important the distinction that Jesus was making right there in that passage. If I said otherwise, I would be as a great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. And the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before even Abraham was born, I am. 
Now, wow, that is powerful. Now, underline, take your Bibles, underline that phrase, I am, because in this moment, Jesus is making a clear distinction about himself. He is claiming in that spot to be God. Because look at this, in Exodus chapter 3, we see um, a little bit later on, or a little bit earlier on in Exodus chapter 3, where God gives Moses his name whenever there's this encounter between Moses and God at the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so that's that very same word that Jesus proclaims of himself. And so that word is Yahweh. And so you'll see it that the Jewish people um, won't even uh, pronounce it. They won't even write it out. And so when they put it in the Bible, maybe in some of your Bibles, it'll say Lord. But in the Jewish Bible, it will have a a Y, a W, and an H. And and it would have those letters together. And it won't have the, uh, the vowels together so that they won't even be able to pronounce the name of the Lord. I am has sent me to you. Look at verse 15. God has also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is, this I am, is my eternal name and my name to remember for all generations. So take in your notes and just write those letters out together. Y-H-W-H. And then that equals Yahweh. And in our American Bibles, it'll say, our concurrent translations, many times it'll say Lord, and it'll be in all caps. And it's because it's a distinction of, it's a word, the name, the personal name of God for himself for all eternity. And so in that moment when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day and they're trying to trap him, he comes out to them and he says, listen, I am the I am. He's disclosing that he is God. And so they, if you, the next part of that passage, if you go back and look at it, is they literally they pick up stones and they begin to try to throw stones at him because that would have been blasphemy to them because he's proclaiming to be God. Jesus in that moment proclaimed that he was God. Look at some of the things that Jesus also proclaimed about himself as God, that there's all throughout the New Testament, there's, again, these conversations with religious people and with others, and he would consistently proclaim that he was divine from God and that God himself and the person of Jesus was walking on earth. Look at John chapter 10, verse 36. Why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the Son of God? After all, the Father has set me apart and sent me into the world. Again, I am the Son of God. Look at John 14, 6, one that if you've been around church for a little bit, you know this verse well. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That article of the before those words is, again, a distinction of exclusivity, that there are no other ways that Jesus is saying, as God, I am the only way to have a relationship with the Father. In John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, I am a mirror image of the Father, that I am a mirror image of God. And so when you see me doing what I'm doing and the miracles that I'm doing and the way that I treat people and the way that I do things, you're seeing a mirror image of God the Father in heaven. Again, a proclamation of His Godship. Look at Mark chapter 14. Then the high priest asked him, this is at the end, toward the end of his life, Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? 
the son of the blessed one? Now, that's a pretty pointed question, right? So he's before the court of the religious leaders. This is at the end of his life, and they're asking him. He's been teaching. He's been doing life for three and a half years now, so they've heard these things over and over and over again, and they're trying to trap him at the end of his life. And they ask him this very pointed question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And look at verse 62. Jesus says this, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, not only am I am, but I'm going to give you a little bit more, is I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. In other words, I have a place of priority and a place of strength because I am the Son of God. Jesus claims to be the Son of God, over and over and over again. And he's the only person, the only religious figure that claims this title of being the Son of God. So our question for us this morning again is, who do you say I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? History tells us that he's real. And if we look at the teachings of Jesus throughout the New Testament, he consistently tells us that he is the I am, that he is the Son of God, that he is divine. So what do we say about it? Well, we've got several options to think about as we um, think about the possible answers that we have to answering that question of who is Jesus to us. Well, the first possible answer is one, he's a lunatic, that he's literally, he's crazy. He's a loon. He has no idea what he's talking about. He should be in a straight jacket. He's just talking about all these different things. And it's just a, a crazy person talking and doing stuff. Well, here's the interesting thing is that psychologists and psychiatrists have actually looked at the teachings of Jesus and looked at a profile of him and said that he is not crazy. That uh, the things that are characteristic about Jesus is the fact that he um, has an existence with the real world, that he lives in the real world and understands it, that he has great relationships with other people, that, that he's a wonderful person to have relationship with, and then also that he's a great communicator. And so several of the key things that you would be, that psychiatrists and psychologists would be looking for, for someone to be crazy or a lunatic, Jesus doesn't match up. So let's move past that and say he's probably not a lunatic. Well, what about him being a liar? What about him saying all these different things and just trying to be really trying to be a con man and, and try to get a whole bunch of money or trying to get a whole bunch of followers or whatever a con man is after for his own good? Think about it this way. If Jesus were a liar or a con man, at that moment that when he was before Pontius Pilate and he knew that this was going to be his last moment, don't you think if he was running a game that that would be the last moment that he would be, okay, I'm just kidding, I'm really just lying, I'm making all this up. That would be the moment. Who would, who would sacrifice all for a con? Also, think about this as well, is that his disciples, those that did life with him, the original 12, but then also those the friends and family that walked and ran with them as well, that after Jesus' resurrection, all of those people gave their life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Again, if it was a lie, all of those people would have dissipated. They would have run away and said, hey, you know what? It was great while it lasted. We made some money. We got on TV. We had a whole bunch of Instagram followers. All those different things that you want when you're running a con. But all of those men gave their lives for the cause of Christ. And none of them 
would have given their life for the cause of Christ if they thought or believed that it was a lie. They had great assurance of who Jesus was. So maybe he's not a lunatic and he's probably not a liar, but maybe he's just a good guy. Listen, that, that's, that's not a bad thing. Jesus was a, a good guy, but surely with all of the things that he did and the ruckus that he caused, he had to be more than a good guy. One of the greatest Christian writers, C.S. Lewis, talks about the idea that this was the thing that brought him across the finish line to faith. That as he was having a walk with J.R. Tolkien and they were talking about Christianity and they were talking about the person of Christ, that in that moment that this idea that Jesus had to be more than a good guy is the thing that took him across the point and saying, I don't believe that Jesus is a good guy. He's more than that. I believe that he's the Messiah. So if he's not a lunatic, if he's not a liar, if he's more than a good guy, then the last thing that it leaves us, the possible options and the possible answer is that he's God, that he has to be God. And so the question for us in relation to that is if he's not a lunatic and he's not a liar and he's not just a good guy, but he's God, then what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? How do we then exchange this, this intellectual knowledge and begin to believe in him? Because listen, there's more than just intellectual knowledge of believing in God. If, if, if we think that just intellectually having knowledge that, hey, I've got the historical facts and I believe that Jesus lived and I believe that Jesus was someone unique and someone uh, powerful and, and maybe even a good prophet, all of those things are good, but that's not the belief that's necessary for life-changing faith. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 8, you see this, that, that Jesus asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. In that moment, when Peter replied, you are the Messiah, he had a specific declaration that he was making. That term Messiah is Christ or the anointed one. And for the Jewish people, that meant the long-awaited Savior of the world that would take away their sins and allow them to have this new relationship with God the Father through Jesus. And so here Peter has received a direct revelation. He's saying, listen, Jesus, I've seen you work. I've seen you operate. I've seen you live. I've heard all of the messages. And all of this thing, I put all that head knowledge together. And now not only do I believe with my mind, but I now believe with my heart and my soul that you are the one that the Old Testament promised us. And you are the anointed one, the Messiah. Peter declares that Jesus is God. That's the same belief statement that you and I need to make with this question of who do you say I am? Is it, there has to be this movement in our mind and in our heart to believe that Jesus is God, that he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, he's not just a good guy, but he is God. So here's the question for us with that is where are you with this question? Do you still think that he's a lunatic? Do you think that he possibly is still a liar or not always telling the truth, or maybe you still think, hey, he's a good guy or he's a good prophet? Or are you at a place of saying, hey, I believe that he might be God? Maybe you want to make the same declaration that Peter made. But again, here's what I want you to get, is that belief in God, belief in Jesus, is more than just an intellectual ascent. It's more than just sitting in a class and, and soaking up all this information. You can study the Bible 
forward and backward and have all the information possible and know that God exists, know that Jesus exists, but still not believe that he's the Messiah. There's something that happens. Look at this in James chapter 2. You see this verse. This is a powerful verse. It says this, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Listen, demons are atheists. They, they know who God is, and they believe in him intellectually, but they do not follow him. So the same can be true for us, is that we can intellectually know, but we choose not to follow. It's not knowing about God, but knowing God. You remember that passage that we talked about a little while ago where Jesus says, you do not know him, and I do know him. There's this interesting word there called gnosko. Uh, gnosko, it's a weird word, but it means to know. It actually means to, means to know God or know someone intimately in a deep experiential relationship. And so that, that intimate knowledge of someone, think about a husband and wife getting to know someone. That's the level of intimacy that they're talking about. Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. It's not a set of moral guidelines. It's not a philosophy. Christianity is Jesus. And it's having this intimate, experiential knowledge of Jesus. That as we get to know him and we believe in him and there's this exchange that happens with him. And that all of a sudden as we get to know him, change for us happens from the inside. It's kind of like a butterfly, caterpillar turning into a butterfly. The, the caterpillar is ugly and it's walking along the ground and really doesn't go anywhere sl- fast and it's just real slow and ugly and nasty. And then the process of metamorphosis happens and this caterpillar experiences new life. And when it becomes a butterfly, it sees things in a whole different perspective. Kids gather around and want to see butterflies and they love the beauty of them. Something about the caterpillar and people are like, eh. It's gross. The same metamorphosis that happens between a caterpillar and a butterfly is the same thing that happens to us. And that moment when we gnosko God and we believe in him, our hearts and our minds and our soul and our will and our character begins to be transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. We are transformed from the inside out. Well, how do we get to that place of that kind of belief because it seems like it's easy to have the head knowledge and the intellectual knowledge to know the facts about Jesus. But what does it mean to take that next step and to cross that finish line of belief, like Gnosko belief, to have a deep, intimate relationship with God through the person of Jesus? Look at John chapter 1, verse 12. And it gives us this beautiful, what I want to call equation, um, for deep gnosko type faith. In John chapter 1 verse 12 it says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So I don't know if you're really good at English. I'm not. But in here I'm told that there are three verbs. Alright? Those three verbs. Believed, accepted, and become. So write those down. Believe, accepted, and become. And so maybe even for that word accepted you can even say receive. So here's our equation that I want you to grasp. Belief or believe plus receive equals become. So in that moment that you believe 
and that you have that intellectual knowledge. You understand that, that uh, history tells us that Jesus is real and that as you look at Scripture, you can see in the Old Testament there's these prophecies and predictions that a Messiah is going to come and that through the New Testament that you can see that Jesus fulfills thousands of, of prophecies and he's exactly who he claims he is as the Son of God. You believe all of that. The next thing that you have to do is you have to receive it. What that looks like is that I can give you, put out a $20 bill. I can have a $20 bill in my hand and I can offer it to you and it can sit there forever and you can continually have the opportunity to receive it. But until you actually take it from me and put it in your pocket and make it yours, you have not received it. And the same is true in our faith with Jesus Christ is that God, through the person of Christ and what he did upon the cross, He has put his hand out and he said to us, here is a gift. Here is $20 and I want to give this to you. And you don't have to do anything to earn it. It's just because you are you. Would you receive it? And that's the struggle for most of us is that we can get our minds around the intellectual things of that Jesus existed and all these different stuff. But this idea that we actually get something from God for free is the thing that we struggle with the most. And But the equation is belief plus receipt equals becoming. And when we believe and when we receive, that metamorphosis that I talked about begins to happen. And the the, the ugliness of the old person, the old ways, the, the slumming and walking around differently is changed. And now you become this beautiful butterfly and you have new eyes and a new perspective, you th- see things, you see people, you see relationships, you see your finances, you see life radically different because of the transformation that takes place on the inside because of this equation of belief and receive that equals this becoming, that you're now moving in a whole new way. And it's an adventurous new life because you see things radically different and you experience things radically different. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It beautifully explains it. This means that anyone, this belief and receipt that becomes, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Literally, that you are born again. The old life is gone, the caterpillar life is gone, and the new butterfly life has begun. This beautiful metamorphosis that takes place because of the belief and the receive that we take on and then the becoming and the transformation that happens. Believe plus receive equals become. Now listen, so many times as I talk to people about this equation or I talk to people about this transaction of, hey, listen, I, I want to believe in Jesus. I, I really do want to proclaim that he's God, but, but I struggle with the fact of, am I worthy? God's offered this gift, and I get that there's a gift, and there's $20 waiting for me to receive it, but, but I need to go take a bath. I need to clean up. I need to not cuss as much. I need to quit smoking. I need to start doing all these different things. And you have this list of rules or regulations that you've got from somewhere that you believe that you've got to do so that you can become good enough to receive. Listen, you're never going to become good enough. There's never enough things that you can do to make yourself worthy enough or clean enough or whatever it is that you think you've got to become to receive the gift. That's the wrong equation. That will never equal up. It has to be belief plus receipt 
to become. If you try to flip that around and make becoming in the place of believing or a place of receiving, you will never experience the full life that God has for you. It has to be belief plus receipt equals becoming. And in that, the beautiful journey of a new life begins. This new born-again life and that you've been metaphorized and, and you now fly and you live as a butterfly with this idea of new eyes and new perspective and a new purpose and a new agenda and a new mission. So my question to you this morning is this. Actually, it's the question that Jesus is asking us this morning is, who do you say that I am? As we've talked about Jesus this morning, I hope and I pray that this is kind of reverberated in your mind and your soul. And, and I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. Maybe you've gone to church for a long time and this is a new concept for you. Maybe you're just tuning in for the first time and you're hearing this and this is intriguing you. Listen, I want you to be able to answer this question with certainty. Just as Peter answered it whenever Jesus said, Who do you say I am? And Peter responded, You are the Messiah. My prayer is is that you will have the same energy, the same conviction, the same purpose in saying, You are the Messiah. When Jesus asks you this morning, Who do you say I am? This morning, if you're thinking about this question and you think, You know what? I'm at a place where I'm ready to be a part of this equation of believe plus receive so that I can become. This morning, would you pray with me? I'm just going to pray these words and, and I want you to make this your prayer. And I want you to use your own words to do this, but just make this your words. Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that, that, that I'm a caterpillar and, and that I'm ugly and that I'm messy and I'm doing life on my own time and in my own agenda. But that I know that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is God. And this morning, as he asked me the question, I can sense it in my heart, my mind, and my soul. He's asking me, who do you say I am? This morning, I want to proclaim with Peter and with millions of other believers, I want to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. And I believe in him. And I want to receive the gift of salvation that he's had offered to me And this morning, I want to receive it and take it and make it my own and become and begin a new journey, begin a new life. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. It's in your son's name that we pray. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, if you've made that prayer, if you've said that prayer and you've made that decision, I'm so excited for you. There is nothing better than making that decision. That's the most important decision. That's the most important question that you can answer in your life is that question of who do you say I am. So this morning, if you've answered that question one way or another, I want to know about it. Would you let us know? Would you email the church? Would you um, contact us through Facebook Live? Would you contact us through our Crosspoint community online and just let us know that, hey, I've prayed this prayer or, man, I'm thinking about this prayer. I've got more questions. I'd love to be able to talk with you and uh, be able to help you figure this out and think through this question. The most important question that you'll ever deal with in your entire life is this. Who do you say I am? What are you going to do with Jesus?